Impenitence by C.S. Lewis All the world's wiseacres in arms against them shan't detach my heart for a single moment from the man-like beasts of the earthy stories, badger or moly, rat the oarsman, neat Mrs. Tiggywinkle, Benjamin, pert nutkin, or, ages older, Henryson's shrill mouse, or the mice the frogs once fought within, with in Homer. Not that I'm so crazed as to think that the creatures do behave that way, nor at all deluded by some half-false sweetness of early childhood, sharply remembered. Look again. Look well at the beasts, the true ones. Can't you see? Cool primness of cats or conies, half-indignant stare of amazement, mouses twinkling adroitness, tipsy bears rotundity, toads complacence. Why, they all cry out to be used as symbols, masks for man, cartoons, parodies by nature, formed to reveal us, each to each, not fiercely, but in her gentlest vein of household laughter. And if the love so raised, it will, no doubt, splashes over on the actual archetypes. Who's the worst for that? Mary Gup, be gone, you fusty killjoys, new Manichaeans. Here's a health to Toad Hall. Here's to the beaver doing sums with the butcher. This is the Redeemed Imagination Podcast, a podcast of the Anselm Society on reenchanting the church. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Redeemed Imagination Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Brown, with Father Matt Burnett and Heidi White today. And we're going to talk about Father Christmas. Because you see, Tolkien and other esteemed writers have a beef with Father Christmas. Some of them with Father Christmas as such, some of them with Father Christmas's presence in Christianity, but a few, even of the more, the more mythologically friendly sort, with Father Christmas's presence in Narnia. Think back to Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Think about what goes into that story. Forget for a moment reading it as a child and look at it through the eyes of an adult, if you even can. And think about what goes into that story. There are fawns. There are talking trees. There's, wait, Father Christmas? There are appearances in this story by creatures, ideas, mythological elements from different places, from different time periods, from different types of stories. Why are they all jumbled together? Is it all just one big mess? Did Lewis make a mistake? Was Lewis just being sloppy? Was he just sort of having fun and thinking, oh, I, I like this concept. I think I'll just throw it in. Father Christmas. Everyone likes Christmas. That's what I would do with bacon, I think, in some stories. Just bacon would make occasional appearances because everyone likes bacon. Is that what Lewis was doing? That's what we're going to talk about today. And I'll throw it out to the group. And we're going to talk a num about a number of uh, fun side issues along the way. Because Lewis certainly had an argument. He wrote an entire poem about it. He wrote a number of things about it. Our friend Michael Ward has written an entire book about it. 
but let's talk about it. We actually are, uh, by the time you listen to this, you will have either uh, experienced or be about to experience, either live or in recorded form, uh, a dialogue that we're going to act out at our annual Christmas party with Lewis and Tolkien uh, arguing about this exact subject. So we thought we would just take the conversation a little bit deeper. What's going on with Father Christmas, ladies and gentlemen? Well, that's a good question. And what you said a few minutes ago resonated with me about looking at it through the eyes of an adult instead of a child, if you can. So as a teacher of literature now and commentator on podcasts on literature now, since you said that, I've been thinking, can I do that? Is it possible for me, who loved Narnia as a child, to kind of step outside of that wonder that I still have for this series and and think about Father Christmas from the eyes of a sophisticated literary critic. I'm not sure I can. I don't know. What do you think, Father Matt? I will sort of unabashedly come down on Lewis's side and uh, both as a, hopefully, a childlike reader, but also hopefully as with, um, is more discriminating the right word? I'm not sure. Differently discriminating? Because I think it... I think it fits in by by way of a couple of other links uh, to, to Tolkien's literature and in scriptures, which again, we know that Arnie are not a- analogies, but we know that Lewis was, uh, was a saturatedly Christian man. And so I think it's absolutely fair. Michael Ward would agree. Uh, Rowan Williams would agree. Diane Glider would, everyone would agree, frankly, that it's totally fair to throw his stories up in the air with the Bible and see what, see what gloms together. Right. So what, what were, if someone could summarize, what were Tolkien's arguments against the appearance of Father Christmas in the stories? Who knows that kind of off the top of their heads and can explain that to the audience? It was um, inconsistent with the characters and their identities as mythological figures were not consistently woven together. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if, I, if I understand it right, and I may not, but if I understand it right, what made Tolkien a bit grumpy was... That Father, it felt like Father Christmas was sort of just dumped in the middle of this, hands out gifts, and then runs off merrily without it being uh, any sense of where he came from, what his role was to be, and how the, uh, what was the effect of his, his appearance afterwards. He felt like it was just sort of dumped in and uh, kind of willy-nilly. So basically, Tolkien's argument was that Narnia experienced Christmas much the way that most of us experience Christmas. Huh. Go on. Unpack that. Appears out of nowhere gives us gifts, and runs off willy-nilly. Huh. So it is a, a literary argument, a bit of a scholarly argument, mm. and he's not wrong about that. A lot of Lewis's characters, you know, that the poem that you read a few minutes ago, Father Matt, mm-hmm. uh, Impenitence, it's a short poem, an apology, a defense of his use of Archetypes kind of jumbled together, I think Mm -hmm. is the phrase that he uses. And he says, if it splashes over onto the actual archetypes, Mm -hmm. that's uh, all the better. Right. And I think his point in that is that the archetypes were never the thing itself. That there is an order to archetypes. Those, Those of us who understand that, who study that, the idea of archetypes being... Uh, a symbolic representation of some kind of universal truth 
in the form of a recurrent literary motif or figure, something like the mm. wise guide. You know, you've got Dumbledore, you've got Gandalf, mm. you've got these uh, Yoda, right? Throughout these pop culture and literary stories, there can often be a hero who's trained by some kind of wise hermit or guide or wizard along the way who has these magical powers, lives a long time, um, knows more than any human being ever could or should and has suffered greatly and overcome. That's what we're talking about when we talk about archetypes. And you can see that in many ways, like the faithful sidekick, like Samwise Gamgee. That's another archetype. The wise woman, the old crone, uh, the beautiful maiden who appears and helps a, a knight on his quest, whatever it is, those archetypes exist throughout literary history. And there is an order and a method to them. Uh, but does it, child need to know that to recover the sense of wonder. That seems to be what Lewis is claiming. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I mean, so take thinking archetype, thinking like Lewis says, sort of um, inherent qualities of the universe that are, that are then captured in a character. So Tumnus is sort of winsome, delightful, irenic way of relating. And as, as you can think of that kind of person or that kind of archetype, uh, the centaurs is the huge, strong warrior kind of thing. The mice, it was interesting, the, I didn't even notice it now, but he mentioned the mice, the, the mouse's adroitness. And in language of the wardrobe, it's the hundreds of mice that sort of scamper up on, on Aslan and chew away at his, at, his, um, at his bonds. A picture of their adroitness, I would offer. Mm. Um, and so with Father Christmas, I don't think, A, um, I'll just go ahead and throw this out there and you may throw it out too, um, <laughs> but certainly it's not that it doesn't fit the story. I mean, what's the, what's one of the, the the refrains of this? Always winter, never Christmas, right? So it's not as if there's no precedent for Father Christmas to show. It's not as if there's no precedent for um, for his appearance and for his giving gifts and for his giving gifts of particular value to particular people. Right. So this is this is um, I would suggest that this is a strong literary piece. Uh, uh, Tolkien himself. What did what happened when Galadriel uh, set off um, sent off the, the fellowship? She gave each one particular gifts to be used by that particular person in upcoming specific situations. And I'm going to go to Ephesians four. Right, Christ has has descended and then ascended as a conquering hero, frankly, and from his reign over all the earth, what does it say? He gives gifts to each one. He gives gifts to men. And then he goes out and says, each, some of the, he, eliminate, he um, enumerates some of the gifts, um, prophets, teachers, pastors. So this idea of giving gifts with, to particular people for particular purposes via Father Christmas, who is an English icon, right? An English literature icon, actually. I think it's, I think it's a wonderful moment. Okay. <laughs> but Father Christmas specifically... So Tolkien wants the character that gives everyone special gifts and sends them on their way. So he takes, okay, I want, I want this archetype represented for a particular reason. So I will create a character that fills the archetype. Seems to me that Lewis just takes the character. I mean, it's as if I sat down to write a, a, a space fantasy story and said, all right, I want a villain who's just really, really scary and dark and awful. I want like my Darth Vader character. In fact, I'll use Darth Vader. That is, isn't that what Lewis is doing? He doesn't take the archetype. He takes the actual thing. Right. Well, the other piece 
to that along with what you're saying that I think is fair. And this is where I'm trying, as you said earlier, Brian, this is why I said I'm trying to take off my child glasses and put on my literary critic glasses, because I'll say if I encountered this story as an adult trained literary critic, I might react exactly as Tolkien did, Mm. Um, because what Tolkien did was he was exceptionally careful with medieval archetypes that he put into Middle Earth. He was scholarly about it. He was careful about it. He wanted to honor these archetypes because what Tolkien and Lewis and the Inklings were trying to do was to recover a sacramental vision of the world through the medieval literary archetypes. That was an unqualified statement from both of them. Mm-hmm. And so Lewis, who wrote these children's stories, uh, as he says in the poem, he says, if that what he's saying seems to be the sacramental vision is deeper than the archetypes. That's the thing itself. That's what we're trying to get at is the gospel story shining through whatever fiction we're creating. So if we end up kind of jumbling up or dis- disorganizing the actual archetypes, that's okay because we're really getting to the thing itself, the thing underneath it, the greater story. What Tolkien is saying is, but they already did that. That's already been settled. There's a tradition and we should work within the tradition and be careful with it. And so, but they're both trying to do the same thing. And so they're coming at it from these two different angles. And I I think now as more of a traditional literary critic, if I came across these stories as an adult, I might say the same thing. Wait. You've got Fawns and Father Christmas. You've got that. It just. That's cheating. Yeah, it's cheating. It's it is. But I don't disagree with Lewis's larger point, which is the thing itself is more important. So and Tolkien might say, yeah, but that already is there. In what way is it already there? Meaning there is already a tradition when he wrote Middle Earth. In fact, you know, I have a, a girlfriend who's teaching medieval literature and. Um, to middle school kids, and she's teaching Tolkien at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because if you want to understand the medieval mindset, read Tolkien. You've got it. Even though there's magical creatures, actually, the medievals believed in that. They really saw those thin sure. places. So to them, mermaids and elves and, and fairy kingdoms were actually real. They, we just couldn't see them. And so Tolkien's getting to the sacramental mindset of the medieval world uh, in a way that is utterly consistent historically, according to what they believed. And Lewis did kind of just take stuff and put it in his stories as it seemed to kind of come alive to him, which I think is a perfectly valid way of doing it. His writing, writing these stories, I think, as most people probably know, happened fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. I'm not actually trying to defend him. I think I'm I'm still going to say that. Father Christmas as particularly having a much more, if I understand correctly, I may not, but if I understand correctly, having a much more pervasive place in the minds of, of England, English and English people than he does for, for Americans, although Tolkien, obviously the exception. But if, that, if that's a more pervasive figure, and if he's not the archetype, if, if he points to the archetype of right, gift giving for a purpose and to move the world forward in good ways, 
right, and defend the defenseless and um, heal the, the broken, all of which would be two of those gifts that they that um, three of the gifts that Father Christmas gave the kids. If that's the case, and because he chose children's fairy stories because they were leaner, because they forced you to get to the point more quickly, right? Because they they forced you to leave out um, things like um, gratuitous violence and sex and that kind of thing. Because the, because the genre forced you to have a, a leaner, more focused writing, is this actually inappropriate? I mean, he wasn't trying to write the full mythology that Tolkien was trying to write. And so within, those, within that understanding of the genre and the reason he chose the genre, I'm just not so sure that it's entirely out of the blue. And especially, again, always winter, never Christmas. How are you going to resolve? What a great way to resolve that dilemma they didn't bring in Father Christmas. Hello. I totally agree. In fact, <laughs> I think it's the only way to resolve the dilemma. And that, I think, is the literary argument against Tolkien's literary argument. Right. Which mm. is once you say always winter, never Christmas, you have to have Christmas. Right. And what is our archetype for Christmas? Father Christmas, Father Christmas Santa Claus, right? Okay. And plot point wise, you need some way to get the gifts to the kids and so it's an elegant resolution yeah, to the always winter, never, never Christmas and the getting the gifts. Yeah. And I think it in some ways sacramentalizes the modern heresy of Santa Claus, that he just gives you what you want. Mm. The Father Christmas in Narnia gives redemptive gifts, gifts that are beyond the children's abilities, mm. gifts that participate in the healing of the land. And actually takes them into peril. Yes. Frankly. Agreed. I mean, they're, they're gifts that projects them into perilous situations, mm. not right. um, sort of yeah. warm, fuzzy, comfy situations. They're not self-indulgent. And so then when, you know, we used Narnia's Father Christmas as a way of, you know, we read that section and said, this is what the world is distorting when it talks about Santa. This mm. is the real purpose of gifts. Uh, we oh, use that great. as a teaching tool in our home. And so I think that would be kind of the moral mm -hmm. <laughs> and the literary argument oh. that defends Lewis's choice of Father Christmas. To my sons, 28, 26, and 21, I'm sorry I didn't do that. I wish I had. <laughs> <laughs> Grandchildren. <laughs> no, that makes perfect, perfect sense because the there's, there's also another aspect in play with Narnia that's not in play with Lord of the Rings, which is that there are people in the Narnia stories, there are people from our world going into mm. Narnia. And so we are right. experiencing Narnia not only with the eyes of our world, but with the eyes of actual characters essentially representing us in Narnia. And there's a dynamic at play in the stories that is is not in play in uh, some of the recent movie adaptations. Uh, you see this with Prince Caspian, for example, with the stories. There's always this element that whatever you bring of yourself into Narnia gets redeemed, refocused, mm. um, pointed back to That's what it's great, supposed to Brian. be, which is, which is one of the reasons the Prince Caspian movie, in my view, was so terrible because it flipped the dynamic and had the children essentially bring all of their earthly faults in with them. And that was the focal point of the story. Great point. And with, the, with that dynamic, you could almost make the argument in light of what you just said, Heidi, that Father Christmas is there not only for the story and not only for something that Lewis was trying to do from a literary standpoint, but also for us to re-enchant Father Christmas mm. himself yes. for us. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah. Amen. That'll preach. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is something that he does fairly fairly consistently. And in which which in turn 
Tolkien's perspective as far as approaching it, I'm, I'm, I'm almost hesitant to use the word um, tradition in this sense, but he, you know, he wants to, he wants to work within a box. He wants to work within a framework that's been provided. And Lewis is more interested in playing with the framework uh, and maybe making you see it a little bit differently, right. not to damage the framework, but actually to re-enchant it for you. Sure. Well, and that, that you're exactly right. That is one of the main differences between their work, which both of them produced work that is just so redemptive, deeply so. Uh, and, and they, even though they disagreed on some things, kind of like Peter and Paul in scripture, right? They both <laughs> have been so <laughs> redemptive in the modern world, in re-enchanting the modern world and uh, remembering the goodness and in fighting darkness. So we don't mean to be pitting them against each other, no. but there are distinguishing differences between what they were trying to do. And you you nailed it. Tolkien was was trying to recover a tradition. And Lewis was saying, what was the tradition trying to get to in the first place? That's what I'm yeah. trying to get to. And both of those have such value. Yeah. Uh, and are very different from yeah. from anybody else in their generation. Yeah, just Lewis, Lewis and his idea of supposals. I mean, uh, his. I, I'm, the more I um, think about Narnia, and it's some of his later work, right? And I think I think some of his very best thinking shows up in there. I really do, as some of his later work. But I, I think he gave himself the permission with these supposals to actually not be watertight. Right. So he gave himself the permission mm. to say, suppose Father Christmas showed up in Narnia. What would that look like? And then he wrote it. Right? Suppose there was a king who sacrificed himself on behalf of his people in Narnia. What would he look like? And he wrote it. As we all know, it's not a table. You don't have a table. You have one line, Jesus to Aslan, all this sort of stuff. It says, I'm trying to, I've always been trying to figure this out. And I would love the references to somebody who does it better. But it's as if he, he throws Narnia stories up into the air and then you throw whatever story you want to up in the air with it, the Bible, literature. And you sort of see where up in the air these things kind of uh, have resonance. It's almost, it's not random, but it's not a table either. Mm -hmm. um, and so if, if he's working with supposals, again, I'm sorry, I'm repeating myself, but Father Christmas, Father Christmas, what's it look like if Father Christmas shows up in Narnia? He comes in at a crucial moment, right? He brings comfort. Um, it's a, it is a, at the moment is actually a very supply, surprising uh, plot twist because you think it's the witch that has overcome them, overtaken them, and is about to kill them. And in fact, it's ah, Father Christmas. And he gives them these gifts that are, again, warrior like gifts and healing gifts that will take him into peril. Anyway, I, I sort of clearly, I, I, I appreciate Lewis's work with this. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and, and he does the same thing with the space trilogy. Half the space trilogy is, is, is as you put it, the, the supposals. And, and, and half of it is designed to take you, get you to look at something in our world with fresh eyes. Mm. That's right. And, and see it with that different light. He's not, he doesn't sit down and say, I'm going to make this coherent argument for X. I mean, he does plenty of that in his other stuff. But, right. but he, he recognizes that I could sit down and make a particular argument to you about something that we're losing with, with regard to uh, how we view gender roles or how we view authority uh, or how we view the supernatural and the natural in their relationship. He could make an argument about that or he can just throw it up in the air and say, okay, 
Here's a hypothetical for you. What if? Let it speak for itself. Yeah. Right. It's brilliant what he does, and he's a very careful writer. So we don't want to give any impression in this conversation that that he was haphazard, that he didn't do things on purpose, right. that he's like, oh, let's just throw in Father Christmas here or whatever. And Merlin, Merlin sounds interesting. Let's just put him in that hideous strength. He's doing something very intentionally and in saying throughout generations, people have been reaching for the thing itself. And we create archetypes that represent that truth. What if, suppose, those things came together in some way. What would that feel like? And in Narnia, because it's a children's story, it feels very seamless. You know, nobody, when you're reading the story as a child, no one's like, wait, hold on. Father, you know, no seven-year-old is going to say, Father Christmas doesn't belong in Narnia. It's beautiful. It's a a beautiful integration of this imaginative world with the world that children actually believe in and Mm -hmm. interact in and consider real. And that, that is the sacramental worldview. That a child believes that a magical being is going to leave them a redemptive gift to participate in the salvation of the world. That is the sacramental worldview. That's what we're all trying to recover in re-enchanting the cosmos, right? Um, but in that hideous strength, his goal is the opposite. His goal is to say, if the medieval world comes to the modern world, we will, it's weird. There's a dissonance between the two. Merlin shows up and condemns this character for using birth control, right? It's, and, and there's a, talking bear and it's weird there's a thinking bear yes yes it's a very strange book and most people encounter that book and i know that's not the point of this conversation but most people encounter this book and think it is strange because it is because that's what he's trying to do he's trying to say the sacramental world will shake up the moderns we will not accept it it's plato's cave Mm -hmm. and as you pointed out it's 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 uh, well, and, and you said this, Father Matt, when, when Father Christmas appears, it's as a surprise. And when the surprise appears, you've been, as a child, you've been set up so well for it that it's the most, it's the happiest thing. And you're, and you're so excited that Father Christmas, be, be, that feels like, it feels like the most, uh, maybe not the most natural thing in the world, but the most welcome yeah. uh, thing in the world in that moment. I mean, just the most welcome, thing. absolutely. Just, absolutely. This, just this morning, I was, I was uh, showing my kids a couple of um, YouTube videos of orchestral performances of a couple pieces of music that I like that I thought they would like. And I was showing them, uh, the light cavalry overture and I was showing the performance of the throne room music from star Wars. And, and you could see these, you know, these are not subtle pieces of music. These are, these are very sort of bourgeois pieces of music. Everyone likes these unless you're so well educated that you, you know, you're supposed to turn your nose up at them, but there's a reason why everyone likes them because there are points in those pieces of music that they've built you up for so that when they happen, you know, yes, that's exactly what was supposed to have happened. And you could see this in my four-year-old and my two-year-old, you could see as it started to build, you could see they knew something was coming and they didn't know what it was, but when it came, they, they started clapping and literally jumping up and down. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's exactly the effect I do. Right. I agree. Which goes back and to whether it came, are good. whether it was crafted in particular or whether it came to him instinctually. I'm actually not sure, um, Heidi, but either way. And I think that that points to something that, that Heidi's fond of saying, uh, which I, I don't want to put in your mouth, but the relationship between the stories that we read and the great story. Right. Tolkien and Lewis are approaching it different ways, but Lewis is, is anything but a rebel. <laughs> Right. You, you can't right. tell that you can't frame. I did it facetiously at the beginning, but uh, you can't frame this 
these two different approaches in terms of, well, mm. Tolkien's the, the stodgy traditionalist and Lewis is the rebel. Hey, they, no. they both wore vests and smoking jackets okay. and drank pork. They both mm. loved traditions. They both loved old things. They both wanted people to see the old things uh, in, in their proper light. Right. And they were both trying to get at something bigger. They were. Yeah. And they were both part of the mid 20th century in which there was an actual overt war against the old things, which continues today. Mm. Right? But they fought in World War I. They saw, they were writing at the same time as Hemingway was writing, saying, everything's falling apart and there's mm -hmm. nothing to believe in anymore. And then there's the guys in smoking jackets teaching medieval literature <laughs> at Oxford saying, no, this Wait is when we need the old things more than ever. That's right. This is when they have to be recovered and remembered. This is when we need to believe that there is a unifying story and that right now we're in the part in which the hero is fighting the monster. Don't give up. Mm. Something is coming. Glory is coming. That's it wasn't academic to them. It was historically relevant. It was necessary in kind of the crumbling of the traditional world, which we were born into. Yeah. The three of us. Yeah. We they were there when yeah. it was the happening. The drama was real for them. Yes. Yeah, the drama was real. Like yeah. before World War One, the world was populated. The Western world believed. After World War One, which they both fought in, people stopped believing. And they were saying, Don't give up. Father Christmas is coming. <laughs> right. Yeah. right. And yeah. that's you know, Aragorn is going to restore the He'll land. Like that's, and see, you'll see they were is. writing allegorically to say, don't forget the great story. Beautifully said. Amen. Maybe the, 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 the only time in, re, in modern history I can think of where the, essentially the, the grumpy old curmudgeons uh, landed such a victory. On, on, on the one hand, the world more or less continued on the trajectory it seem to have been put on from World War I. But on the other hand, this army of generation after generation of people who instinctively felt there's something wrong with the way things are headed mm. were given a mythology and an imaginative perspective and a vocabulary for, for how they felt and determined not to live into that. Mm. This is... This is, again, you know, it's the only time in hist recent history I can think of where the grumpy old curmudgeons won. It, they weren't just sitting in the corner right. lamenting the state of things. They weren't writing grumpy movie reviews of all the things that everyone likes, saying how stupid they were. Right. They told they, their own they story. They something new and fresh and positive and strong and noble and, yeah. Right. And clearly descended from the great story. Yeah. To go to yeah, Heidi's point. Right. Well, and that was Lewis says in the silver chair, that's the whole point of the silver chair. It's a book about memory. And when Aslan takes Jill to the top of the mountain and tells her the signs and then says, remember, remember, remember three times Trinitarian, right? Remember, remember, remember that was Lewis. That was Tolkien. That was the Inklings. They weren't trying to do something new. They were trying to recover something old uh, and encouraging us to remember, remember, remember. So the academic kind of conversation of, you know, should Father Christmas be in here or not? If it's fine to take a stand and to have a friendly argument yeah, over it, but they were both doing the same thing, right. yeah. you know. Any last thoughts? That was mine. That was yours. <laughs>
Uh, yeah, just um, they're both masters, aren't they? Yes. And and really, um, modern fantasy literature owes both of them um, in, in incomparable debt, and um, and so does and and I think that's just I think it's fabulous. Where you just said, Heidi, that um, it, it's they're they're trying to shore up the foundations with this in the way that they knew, right? Right. They didn't try and be politicians. But by golly, they were terrific writers, so they wrote great stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first one thing to take away from this as you look ahead to your own Christmas, it's bring the old things back. Remember, Maybe remember, you remember. can you can do it with such elegance and subtlety yeah. that your your home is like stepping into a completely different uh, time and place, and everyone walks out thinking that's just that's just ridiculous. I wish everything was like that. Or you can do it in a way that's so out of place and a little bit awkward, but by golly, you're going to do it because you're going to shock people out of the Black Friday craziness and <laughs> make them see something a little bit differently. Well, Merry Christmas to all of you. Go do something old and we will talk to you in the new year. <laughs> <laughs>